0: Turn it into a pod now fans worldwide say wait, 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 wait. Not a bad job the ad hoc cab squad who chronicles the vanguard of hip-hop at large. Rap taste slacked off. Don't need to be mad dog. Look no further. It's the dead bod rap pod. Pod, 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 pod Podcasting live from San Jose, California. It is the dad bod rap Pod. My name is Demone Carter, aka dim one aka the Dude rapping at the beginning of this program. <laughs> want to make the connection for folks in case uh you haven't put the voices together uh i am joined in zoom by mr nate leblanc what's happening man oh doing all right how are you guys doing shit man it's fucking you know. Monday. it's monday and also i'm i'm here mourning as as we all are um that rihanna is no longer on the market that <laughs> all of us are are the window has closed. Uh, congrats to ASAP Rocky. Um, yeah, it's 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 been a it's been an interesting day. Dave, I I just want to note you've made a turn to beanies. Uh, have. Which great, have. by the way. Uh, <laughs> and this this is new. I don't remember you rocking beanie so consistently last winter. Is this correct?
1: That is correct. Thank you for making note of that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, um, I just been starting to wear beanies way more because I just been um, sort of hanging out, uh, not staying at my place. So um, I just go to work in my beanies. And it's a slippery slope, though. Like, what am I gonna do? Start wearing sweats to work? So,
0: yeah, you know, yeah, um, it's a it's a gateway drug um were i to see you in sweats i would call nate to stage an intervention <laughs> i'd be like he did have on up black in my jeans. uniqlo
2: heat tech sweats and be like only one of us can let <laughs> themselves go so far dave
0: somebody somebody's gotta gotta keep it tight i like because dave is rocking beanies but not in that like super hip way that the kids are rolling up their beanies like mush mouth um, he's doing it in the more like escape from alcatraz like cool style that i think is, is very much age appropriate um so yeah yeah we're here in san jose where it is freezing to us freezing uh it's about 50 degrees but <laughs> but i put on a jacket today and was really freaked out by that but we are pushing on it's uh we're getting into the month of february which um all real hip hop heads know is it time to celebrate the life and legacy of Jay Dilla. This program will be dedicated uh, to the life and works of Jay Dilla, and we've got a very interesting entry point into that conversation. In just a little bit, we're going to be sharing our interview with writer Dan Charnis, uh, whose book Dilla Time drops on February 1st. Um, allegedly, some of us have had uh, advanced copies and some time to read it and sit down with the book. Uh, we were grateful to get some of Dan's time. So wanted to talk just a little bit about Dan as a writer. Whenever I see a hip hop book come out, I'm always like, and who's this guy? <laughs> who's this guy thinking he can write about the thing that I like? Um, Dave, you have you known Charnas for a while? Do you guys you guys go back? Uh, we don't go super back, but I, I was introduced to him
1: through Oliver Wong uh, when, um, mediums cue point started mm. and, um, Dan at first, uh, was the one who oversaw everything. So, um, Oliver uh, made the intro and then subsequently, um, Dan and I kind of lost contact. And then years later I had, um, I was working on a project regarding, um, D styles and Cubert, and, and Dan's name came up because he at one point had tried to sign them to like a label he was starting. Uh, way back in the day anyways i tell you all i tell you all this to tell you that uh super nice guy i mean i've always had had a sense of reverence for him before i even met him and Mm. um you know now with the book you know it's i'm really glad that like his reputation and his history is starting to emerge and you know be a little bit more on the forefront because i mean you know as a writer and as a professor which he also does um, it's, it, you're, you're not necessarily, um, under the spotlight and, you know, I, he doesn't seem like one of those dudes who necessarily want to be, but he's that dude who, who wrote this book, um, Dilla yeah. time. And, um, there's no one else better to do it. Um, just as a funny aside, a couple of years ago, I was a, about to write a Dilla book as well. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. um, literally about three months into just me lagging, um, Oliver Wong, who, who was going to be my editor at the time sent me an email and was like, Hey, this, this isn't to discourage you, but, uh, Dan Charnas is working on a Dilla book. So we might need to re- reevaluate a few things. So, so maybe
2: it's not uh, your time. <laughs> it's Dilla's time. Um, so
1: yeah, I mean, years later, I mean, or maybe about two and a half years later to hold Dilla time in my hands. Now one, I'm Crazy. glad I didn't do it because you know, uh, there's no way that what I would have done would have been better than this. Um, mine would have been a little bit different, but still, this is, uh, this I think is the end all when it comes to Dilla books. Yeah. Definitive. You feel like definitive. I mean, part musicology, part biography parts, just cultural importance. And you know, um, who who else is going to give it like the type of depth and insight that Dan can. And it's really
2: deeply reported. He talked to so many different people. And it has that, like putting you in the room, um, quality that you look for in a in a really deeply reported book um totally yeah dan is a is an og he wrote for you know the the best magazines at their critical times and then um went to i believe columbia to study journalism and uh ended up writing the big payback which i know is just above uh damon's shoulder on his shelf uh in our little zoom uh office setups Um, which is also an incredible book. And he was a label executive. He worked at Deaf American. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Dan produced the beat and signed uh, Quest the Mad Lad. Um, He actually (laughs) produced the beat for 1001 Things to Do with Your Girl. I found out while I was sorting records the other day, had a little back and forth with him about that. Um, He was also the dude, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but for me and my friends, this was legendary. He did like weird spoken word poetry readings of songs on the wake-up show including um i think shimmy shimmy Ya." there's really? definitely an odb track <laughs> on there and me and uh cutso used to listen to those all the time and cutso taped them live off the radio and we never knew who did that but it emerged it was Charness. yeah in wow. the in this twitter thread that that was dan Charness. um but yeah just um a ton of accomplishments and uh the book is the book is incredible it's uh deserves all of the accolades that it's getting right now and I think this will be seen as a really important book not only for Dilla and his legacy but for our kind of thing we're always looking for which are like really well done Mm hip-hop books that raise the level of hip-hop kind of studies if you will Mm -hmm. in mainstream culture um it's got excerpted in Rolling Stone and a bunch of kind of side articles about it he's about to be everywhere um for the next couple of weeks and very well deservedly so
0: yeah, we were we were fortunate to get him. Uh, we've been sitting on this interview for a little bit. We wanted. To I think time it was it. the first interview he yeah, yeah. did in
2: his press tour. Yeah, yes, yeah, we
1: we, we we reached out right away, and um, yeah, we got the first slot. So, uh, uh, like we uh, like you were saying, we've been sitting the, on this for a while, and it's nice to finally drop it. You know, especially with everything slowly emerging right now.
0: Yeah, I'm 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 excited for Charnus. I, I did uh, read Big Payback his book about the business of, of hip hop, uh, which was, you know, to your point, Nate, incredibly well-researched and reported. Uh, I think it's rare that you have a person who is an insider enough to understand uh, what's so great about the subject matter he's covering, but also uh, outsider enough to have a a journalistic, I don't want to say objectivity, but like uh, uh, the distance Um, this isn't, or at least the big payback wasn't like, uh, a propaganda piece like we see now like labels and such will produce their own propaganda pieces. Um definitely unflinching and I'm looking forward to uh Amazon told me they're working on it. It'll be here. <laughs> It'll be here tomorrow. Uh, so I they deliver to... stuff all day. It's light work. Yeah. <laughs> um,
2: what's it called? The, uh, the there, I think Dan went out of his way to not involve himself in this narrative. Like there's parts in the forward and in the afterward where he kind of describes taking his class um, to Detroit as mm-hmm. he described, as he you know told us as well, but there's even a little part, there's a couple of different systems they use. There's like an asterisk and then a little, cross uh Mm -hmm. notation for when he's uh kind of doing uh footnotes and there's a part way 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 at the end of the book where he's like he told a reporter this this and that and then it's like you go to the little cross he's like the the reporter was me but it's like it's not (laughs) a kind of book where they use First person. You know what I mean? Okay, like, he, okay. he didn't insert himself into it in basically any way, even though okay. he was around for some of this stuff. It's like, it's not like when they're describing Dilla's working methods when he was in the original basement and he's like, and then one day he was um uh visited by Chino Excel with a, right. a, a, a label executive. You know what right, I mean? He, right. he, just, he just skips all that and focuses on the heavy beats, uh, which Dilla's life's pretty complicated,
0: I have to say. Uh, yeah. And Nate is uh, the dude who reads all the books if they're good, uh, if you send us a, a, a book. And so um, I feel like, hopefully, and I'll ask you this, Dave, you being our, our media mogul of the group, uh, do you feel like having a definitive work about Dilla that's early signs of being really well-received, do you think this will help a broader audience understand the impact of his life work legacy which i think has been in some ways a little bit cloudy uh or is this just something for like that'll be more a thing for the diehards um such as myself who know a lot but actually even talking to charnis i'm like oh i don't know shit like is, is it do you do you see it being either or both how do you feel about
1: it um i think the brilliance of this book is that there's so many entry points right so i think from a from a musicology uh, from a musicologist uh, sort of standpoint um, it's deep and specific in that regard but also you know just for the layman who wants to know a little bit of biographical information regarding Dilla and also just um, methods of how Dan came up with the with the book itself um, you can dive in in that regard as well I think Um, to I believe it was Nate's point I I don't remember who said this but I think just in general it just it just raises the the level of legitimacy when it comes to uh, books regarding hip-hop you know what I mean Uh, we've been saying this for years how you know you go to uh, Barnes and Nobles and there's like one Kendrick Lamar um, biography and there's like 30 John Coltrane's you know Um, but this one I mean you know Coming from Dan, I mean, he hits it out of the park. I, I really do believe it is the definitive version. I mean, I can't really imagine one that's going to be even deeper or more expansive. So, yeah. Um, yeah, to answer your question, I think this book is probably the best example of a book that can encompass all of it when it comes to Dilla. So it's good for hip hop. It's good for Dilla. It's good for Dilla heads. It's good for people who don't know Dilla. It's good for journalists who want to study how to write a book like this. I mean, it's multifaceted and um, it's brilliant.
0: Nate, do do you feel like uh, having read it, does it deepen your uh, appreciation for uh, Dilla's life and work? Like how what are you walking away from this book? With. oh
2: totally and I, I'm like the least musicological person there is so like having it explained with charts and graphs mm. that even a dummy like me could understand is like hugely important to my understanding I, I you know we all use the same terms pocket swing yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know things of that nature and he, he he does not let you go through it without understanding what he means these these graphs where they show um, the the where the beats are placed and how Mm. how they don't repeat in different measures and stuff is hugely important and it's kind of funny because my ear's not good enough to process what I just learned like I asked you earlier today for kind of a list of songs you thought we'd talk about and I spent a lot of time listening to them in headphones with the with it up and I'm trying to like
0: put put them together (laughs) (laughs) yeah
2: okay this uh this snare is three sixteenths off my (laughs) my brain doesn't work like that I can't tell I'm just yeah. like uh, good beat, bad beat. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, yeah, it definitely deepened uh, my understanding of the music. I will say, I'm not sure I needed to know all this stuff about his life. Like inevitably, when you uh, read a really deep biography, you're going to learn about like the the good sides and the bad sides of people and their character. And I'm like, I, I, especially the, the I don't want to spoil anything. Everyone should read this book. or your copy now, till the time. But the stuff with the estate after he died is terrible it's just it sucks so bad it's just it's just it there it just was left kind of unfinished and he died suddenly and it's just it's it's really really bad and I'm not sure I needed to know quite so much about his the relationships with the women in his life and you know there's 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 a there's a dichotomy uh about Dilla as a person where he made especially in the first golden period of his career really conscious music but then yeah. he was like the full-on strip club. Yeah, yeah. SLA. He had his
0: jiggy face.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, and so yeah. I, I'm not sure I needed to know all that stuff, but it's uh, it's 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 real, right?
0: It's, yeah, is
2: yeah. What really happened, and it's yeah. it's actually fascinating too to think about how short his window
0: was. Oh man, it's it's mm-hmm. it's crazy considering um, that we are talking about him now. What are we? Sixteen years. Uh, removed from from his death and i am getting a very small writ small taste of uh with with tracks kind of untimely passing what that ignites in people mm-hmm. uh several folks oh i have unreleased tracks million music oh I, you know it's like mm-hmm. people the feeding frenzy that comes uh after someone passes because unfortunately in our necrophilic capitalism Uh, the value of their work just goes way way up and so um, it's been interesting not interesting it's been sad to see kind of a lot of the infighting that has happened um, since he passed and why I understood when Madlib tweeted that he wanted his kids to like burn all the masters upon his death like (laughs) like don't even let's not even have this whole weird battle of who's you know whose music it is after he passes.
2: And I just have to say one more thing, which is that I was a record store buyer at this time. And the weird flood of releases from all over the map, from all the different distribution Mm -hmm. companies felt Mm -hmm. weird at the time. Mm -hmm. And now I know I I, I was just at the end, the receiver of this incredibly weird fracturing of the legacy right it's like everyone mm-hmm. who had tapes everyone who had it, mm-hmm. it just, it, 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 just right. everyone threw it at the wall kind of all at the same time
0: yeah
1: really and at the it, same time
2: yeah I'm it sorry, just felt sorry. it just felt bizarre um and not quite in the same way as tupac where that also happened there's a flood of posthumous releases but you knew he was kind of prepping for that weirdly he yeah. just wrote so much recorded so much with the dilla mm-hmm. they were just they just captured oddly the art would be weird um something felt off about it and now i've you know, spent most of the afternoon reading about how it—it it, it was off. <laughs> it was
0: off. Didn't didn't look right. Didn't didn't feel right. Um, I do think there's something to be said for it's kind of like uh, Basquiat's quote unquote friends would come over and steal unfinished works, um, and then try to sell them. Uh, I think I think Dilla's work almost falls into the realm of the painter who was just about to get their flowers, everything that that had they had coming to them for their genius passed away at that moment which is like the the graph kind of the axis of it was just too much but i'm probably being revisionist because i also remember when donuts came out people were like "Eh, fuck is this um and then he passed and then it was like oh my god this is the great i'm like ah ah you guys are kind of must have
2: been a weird week for those people
0: yeah exactly exactly (laughs) Exactly. it was it, it was it was strange it wasn't reviewed well and then all of a sudden somebody who i felt was kind of like You had to be in the know to know how great he was, became universally like, you know, the Dilla Changed My Life stuff came out uh, not shortly after that. And so it's this weird intersection of how death um, influences life. But what I really want to ask is, David Ma, what book are you going to write now? Joe <laughs> uh, like yeah like uh, dill Pickle? Not what
1: are we doing not dill time part 2 <laughs> right. I um, want to be a
2: dilettante
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know you guys I, I I it's a question I've been pondering for a minute I uh, you know I'm constantly just involved in a lot of things that pull my attention away from other things but um I don't know I I think there's been some book discussion amongst us three as well Oh, without giving two.
0: Yeah, well, we're, we're going to write our <laughs> uh, three man cookbook uh, about uh, how to dress up soups the hard way, starring DBRP. Uh, all right. So we want to we don't want to prolong this too much. Want you guys to hear this amazing interview. We had Dan Charnis fresh, fresh, feisty first interview of the press run could have talked to him for like another hour and a half easily
2: i I told him like we really need to have him back like just discuss all the nerdy stuff all the like it just it just at a time when he doesn't have a book to promote i really want to talk to him about all the rest of the stuff he did like i want to talk about like boardroom meetings with rick rubin Mm -hmm. about american recordings you know like i just Mm want to hear what it was like to be in some of those rooms that he's been in um and definitely get the lowdown on those uh those spoken word things for the wake
0: up show (laughs) which i wasn't aware of but now now i'm sure they live on the youtube somewhere i I need to i need this i need to pretty 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 funny um all right well let's get to it here is our interview with a spoken word artist no with writer of the new book dilla time dan charnis dead by rap broad rap pod every week on this program we have people who are moving and shaping hip-hop culture this week is no different joining us in zoom we have acclaimed author dan charnis what's happening man virgo
3: and my name is dan <laughs> uh i'm thank good you. man okay. that, that's a, that's a just- good intro Sorry, we were just having a, pre, a, a pre-show a uh, 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 talk about uh, the floaters float on. So. <laughs>
0: exactly. It's a good way to start any interview. Uh, Dan, loved your book, uh, The Big Payback, as, as you guys can't see it on the podcast, but I've got it right behind me in my bookshelf here. My first question is this. In The Big Payback, you cover a huge span, not a huge span, but you cover a lot of hip-hop history, but from a business perspective. Um, and I'll, I'm going to be... I'm gonna be, you know, 100% real with you, Dan, now that you're on the program. I was like, oh, I want more about the music though. Like, where's where's that at? This new book, from what I understand, um, is all about the music. Was that an intentional kind of focus switch? Were you tired of writing about the business of hip hop? Like, d- does did any of that come into your mind in the process of writing your new book, which I should say for folks is Dilla time um, about the great J Dilla?
3: Well, that's a great question, man. Um, and I want to tell you a little story. When I first conceived The Big Payback, I was still in journalism school at Columbia. And I managed to get myself into, like, there's this one class that, like, people, there's like a, a, a line waiting, you have to apply to get into, and it's called Book Writing with mm. Sam Freeman, who was a, an author himself, a writer for the New York Times. And so you basically, you give him a one sheet proposal for a book and he either lets you in the class or he doesn't. So thank God I got in. And then over the course of the semester, you're supposed to develop a book proposal for your idea. And so the book was, I think at the time it was beats, rhymes and cash, the history of the business of hip hop. And, you know, we workshop chapters and I have a, real like clear memory of there was this one chapter that I had where I was describing, I don't know, maybe how Marley Marl sampled something and I, I got way into sort of the science of sampling. And he says in front of the entire class, Dan, repeat after me. It's about the business. It's about the business and, like, bang that into my head that, listen, I couldn't be so discursive about everything that I loved about hip-hop. I had to be laser-focused for the reader's sake, right? Um, but that said, and that's why I'm so glad you asked this question, is that doing this book about Jay Dilla, like, I finally got mine's off. Like, okay, <laughs> now I can music, You know? Because I've been dope. waiting... You know, twelve years to do this <laughs> shit. So yeah, yeah, that's 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 real. That's totally okay.
0: real. Okay. Oh man, I, I really I really appreciate you sharing that. It's just as as just a, a little bit of follow up and just to set the context for the rest of this interview. Yeah. Um, you have a book coming out on February first, twenty twenty two, um, called Dilla Time, which is uh, about the the life and work of of Jay Dilla, um. Can you just talk a little bit about, like, why Dilla? Why
3: Dilla? Well, um, God, it's a, I mean, I'm, I'm afraid my answer is going to be too long. Why Dilla? Um, <laughs> well, writing a book is, is an insane thing anyway. Like, to take a chunk of time out of your life and to do something like that. About anything. Um, In many ways, it's especially when you're going through it, it's like a a thankless task. I think what sparked it for me was after the big payback, I became a professor. I became a teacher at the Clive Davis Institute at NYU. And I began noticing that my 18, 19, 20-year-old students, this is, you know, in the mid-2010s, right, the mid-teens, all love Jay Dilla. Like, and so I teach the freshman core history course, right. Of pop music. So we, we, in 14 weeks, I go from minstrel C to Miley Cyrus, which is sort of like a round trip, I say, but in any case, I incorporated a Dilla lecture in the last class, the 14th class of this. And Jason King, who is now the chair of the CloudBase Institute, suggested that we turn it into a standalone class because we had standalone classes on Bob Marley, on James Brown, on Stevie Wonder. You know, why not do it on Dilla? And I said, well, you know, Amir teaches here. Questlove teaches here. He should be doing this. Um, And he would always co-teach with uh, Harry Weinger. See, this answer is already getting too long. But um, anyway, long story short, Questlove couldn't do it because of his time commitments. So I said, all right. And I already had um, a, a history with JD. My history with, with JD goes back to when I was in the record business, when I worked for Rick Rubin. I signed an artist by the name of Chino XL. We, in the summer of 1999, August to be exact, we flew out to Detroit. Both of us for the first time never had been in Detroit. Uh, went to the basement. Um, you know, worked on two songs with JD. And, you know, that was our weekend in Detroit. Nine years later, I ended up marrying a woman from Detroit. So Detroit became sort of like my second home. And all those memories of that first time in Detroit, you know, immediately came back. And so the idea was with this Dilla class, I've got a base of operations in Detroit. Let's make everybody who takes the class go to Detroit for three days, four days and we'll conduct the first part of the class there. We'll meet his family, we'll meet his collaborators, we'll meet his friends, we'll, we'll, we'll learn what Detroit has to do with this man. Um, and it was a great class. Um, I taught it in 2017, I taught it in 2019, but there really wasn't a lot for folks to read on Jay Dilla, um, especially music, music-wise. So I came out of that 2017 class basically saying, you know what? Uh, I got to do it. (laughs) I got to do it. And originally I was like, oh, it's going to be like a tiny book about the science of music, like something like this, you know? Oh, yeah. You know, just focus on the music. But when my reporter's brain got into it, it became, (laughs) you know, this fat, you know. Anyway, they used to uh, I used to be on this uh, I used to be a comedy writer on an MTV show called the Lyricist Lounge Show, and um, my nickname there was Shorty Long Sketch because I couldn't <laughs> write anything short. So Shorty Long Sketch rides again. That is that is the, the the quick answer is I wrote it because it hadn't been written yet. Something needed to be written, and I felt like Dilla deserved. Um, a comprehensive biography and and, and, an argument for why he was important um, of the highest quality. And so I I use the tools of a reporter to do that. And so Dilettine is culled from um, nearly 200 interviews conducted over the course of four years, lots of time spent reading court documents um, and then the wonderful base of foundational journalism on Dillo, you know, which is, again, I'm not trying to, like, say that there wasn't foundational journalism on Dillo, But there were some things that were really, really unsaid, missing links that needed to be made. And so this was my opportunity to do it. OK, super long answer. Sorry.
1: <laughs> um, thank you for all that background, man. Super appreciate it. Um, so you mentioned your report. Your reporter's brain. So I, uh, you know, we're gonna jump around a little bit. Hopefully, you can help us contextualize everything before we dive into, you know, more specific things. But you know, chapter eight is a uh, Dilla's technique. You know, based um, it's the mythology versus the reality. Yeah, and yeah. I, I wanted to know, you know, uh, it's a part of a two-part question. One, I mean, what sort of considerations did you need to make in terms of how deep you wanted to dive into all the technical mechanics of it versus just doing the biographical stuff?
3: yeah
1: and uh, just yeah, sorry. oh i'm sorry and just the second part was basically the mythology versus what actually happened um just kind of break that down a little bit for us because I, I i just wonder why the mythology prevailed so much you know
3: well when you i have a question for you um so maybe we'll start with your second part and go back to the first when you think of the mythology of dilla what do you think of Like when I say that, if I say Mythology of Dylan, what comes to your mind?
1: I think a few things come to mind, but um, one of the one of the big things is came up recently because I was just talking to Peanut Butter Wolf about it, which is um, not to name drop or anything. But um, the whole thing about like how he made donuts on his deathbed and how like that became such a prevailing story. And P.B. Wolf was just like, people want to believe in that. They want to just run, take it and run with it. So, yeah. you know, that comes to mind. And that's something that I repeated myself before I actually knew the story, you know, because I mean, what a magical sort of uh, mythology, right? Um, yeah. So that's kind of what comes to mind.
3: I, I love, I mean, uh, that's why I wrote it. I wanted to, and the great thing, there there are n- several really sort of um, closely held myths about Dilla that my reporting does not bear out as true. Mm. But the great thing about this book is they don't need to be true for him to be a genius, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, So I hope that that comes through. I'm pretty sure it comes through, but I I really do hope it comes through for the reader. Um, And then the... and, of course, the, the, I guess mean, the reason why, you know, um, is, number one, when you're a reporter, you, you want to serve the truth. Um, but I also think that the mythology of Dilla has become somewhat toxic, too, mm-hmm. right? I think that the mythology of Dilla, the stories that we tell about Dilla, have actually become more important than what he did. And I think those stories don't get told because people don't necessarily have the language to tell it. So what I really wanted to do was mm-hmm. give people the language to talk about Dilla. And this might be end up being the most controversial thing about the book. The book is essentially like two tracks. Like if you're on your digital audio workstation and you're looking at a multi-track, you know, it's a biography track mm-hmm. and it's a musicology track, a music theory track and a musical time. Right. And so we jump back and forth between the two. And that felt a little risky to me as an author. I didn't know if people were going to get it, you know. Um, but essentially, what I try to do is give people the vocabulary and the tools as we move through his story to understand what he did, how he did it, and why it was important. And perhaps the most annoying prevailing myth for me the one that like is like nails on chalkboard every time I hear it it's like oh yeah well Dylan you know he didn't quantize it's that Mm unquantized sound and yes that was one of the techniques he used but that's not what makes him important and that wasn't the, the great achievement that he had you know which we can talk about but to answer your question that was that was why you know it's a certain exhaustion with the myth the emotion uh and it ties in as you can probably read you know to a lot of different things about about that's
2: a great thank you Dan um I want to talk a little bit about the biographical track before you hopped on I was talking to Dave and Damone I just want to live in the couple of the there's like a I don't know, a 20 or 30 page chunk in the early hundreds where Dilla meets Q-Tip on the tour bus at Lollapalooza 94. And then it kind of concludes with Beats, Rhymes and Life coming out in between. He produces for, um, you know, uh, The Far Side, uh, most famously, uh, Stakes is High, De La Soul. He meets everyone. He becomes part of the UMA I just, I want to luxuriate in that time and talk about like all of the great music that was made. And I think um, for the parts of the book, I've been able to digest so far as someone who does not really understand music theory, but loves hip hop and is a nerd about facts about hip hop. I just want to kind of compliment you on that run and ask you, um, what is it about that time um, where Dilla is emerging that uh, kind of caught your interest or made you want to explore that?
3: Um, so we're, t- we're talking about that, that sort of coming out sequence. I mean, well, I mean, I guess the real answer is I lived it. Um, I was in Los Angeles. I was working for Rick Rubin at, um, what was Deaf American, which became American Recordings at the time. Um, I was around, literally around like in Hollywood sound during the recording of the very first far side. Album, and I became very friendly with Mike Ross and Rick Ross, and I'm friends with them to this day. The owners of Delicious Vinyl, and when Jay Swift left the group, left left the Far Side, right? He was the producer. He was the person who did all their tracks. I mean, I just like Jay Swift was the star to me in in many ways, right? Um, Although the Far Side is incredible, when Jay Swift left and I heard he was shopping a label. I went to Rick Rubin, I said, Rick, yo, we have got to sign Jay Swift. And he had the Waskals, he had a group called Jazzy Fat Nasties, who later would go to Philly and hang out with the Roots. But back in the day it was like, yo, we gotta get this. And long story short, you know, we did, like we went to the Waskell Castle, me and Rick and his Rolls Royce or whatever. We hung out. We saw Jay Swift playing on his NPC and everything, but they wanted literally a bajillion dollars. And so we lost out in a uh, bidding war to Tommy Boy. Um, and the irony of all of that is that Jay Swift really did not end up in a very good place. Um, he, that whatever deal they had with Tommy Boy, their their work ethic was not great. They ended up, I guess, smoking a lot, you know, and it just, like the product wasn't there, right? Um, meanwhile, Mike Ross is like worried about the future of the far side, but um, like maybe he's going to send them to the East Coast to work with like all these East Coast producers that they like, Q-tip included. And that is how... JD falls into Mike Ross's lap, right? As like the person who it's like it's Jay Swift, but it's different and somehow better, right? Mm-hmm. And of course Mike is telling everybody, this kid from this kid from Detroit, this kid JD. I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. Jay J. Swift, Jay Swift. Every everybody in LA, we were like, you know, um you know, ah, you know, k Swift's leaving the far side, far side. And then we learned, I remember being in the House of Blues sometime in 1995 when they had the release party for Lab Cabin. And they played the video on the big screen at House of Blues um, for, you know, the crowd. And it was like, wow, you know, mm. a, a perfect song. And so that is when I became initially a fan of JD, like that very first one. And so um, I wasn't privy to, his, you know, all of the different uh, moves that he was making in and out of studios with folks. But we, we heard the product and the product came in a rush in 95, 96, um, you know, uh, 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 Farside and Mad Skills and Dela and Busta and then finally Beats, Rhymes and Life. Um, which is an interesting album right in some ways mm-hmm. a departure for for tribe and was hotly debated yes. uh, then and and later and now so that was a great time for JD but it yielded to an even more important time like that was not he was not done <laughs> you no. know what I mean?
0: no by by no means and it's it's very interesting that um i don't know if you agree with this um jd's the recognition of of dilla's greatness seemed to be a slow burn there were definitely people who were even like oh he ruined the far side or oh he he right. ruined tribe and it was this right. for, and and for those who kind of were in tune it was like I don't know. This dude seems like the greatest thing ever, but there was definitely a school of thought in hip hop. And we've actually talked to a couple of producers on this program, even cats from Detroit that were like, "Nah, wasn't really into it. Um, And so I'm, I'm wondering, and I, apologies. I have not had time to read the book yet. uh, Wanted to get your thoughts on why do you think it took so long um, for folks to come around to Dilla's work? And, and uh, do you think, for good or ill, his untimely passing was a catalyst for people really getting into his work?
3: It's a great question. Um, I, I think, you know, a, a big part of the book, the middle of the book is Jay trying to find his own footing and he is, he, he gets plucked out of obscurity by Q-tip, but then he gets put into this collective called the UMA, which obscures his identity as a matter of policy. And that wasn't, uh, it is definitely not the, the angle of this book that that was something that was meant in any way to suppress James by Q-tip. I think it was like Q-tip saying, well, this has always worked for me. All of my stuff I've credited to A Tribe Called Quest my whole career and so when we have this production crew, we're going to be the UMA, just like the track masters of the track masters. It didn't work for James. It didn't work for him because he wanted to make a name for himself. And even as he's moving away from the UMA, he's getting subsumed in this other collective, uh, the Soulquarians. And so there's this moment in the book where I point to, you know, we're like right at the core of James doing his what i believe to be his most important musical work right which is like water for chocolate and voodoo and all this stuff and every time jay produced something like six or nine tracks on like water for chocolate in 1999 2000 and every time he's credited the credit appears as produced by the soul jd for the uma it's like he's smothered in brotherhood none of it is um uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for it's not meant with any kind of ill intent right there's no malice in it but this is I think a, lo- a lot of what is behind his name change mm. in 2001 he just wants to make a name for himself he couldn't even have his name even the name JD there was a Dutch DJ named JD and then Jermaine Dupri who already had a name decided he was going to be JD fuck that (laughs) right so it was very frustrating for him so i think then the the name thing had a lot to do with it um i also think that james in many ways was not uh the work that he was doing was i want to say it wasn't mainstream because that is such a, a slippery word but it was sophisticated In ways Mm. that hip-hop was becoming increasingly less so. Mm. And so he was a person who was beloved by some of the greatest artists in the world. And I mean some of the greatest artists in the world. But not known to the average fan. and Not known to Detroiters, right? At least those who weren't hanging out at the hip-hop shop or the Rhythm Kitchen. You know, if you're just listening to the radio in Detroit, they don't... I'm not going to play the, the far side and, you know, <laughs> deep out, deep album cuts from Buster Rhymes, you know, on the on WJLB in Detroit. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. I, 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 I feel like, um, yeah. Yeah. Did, mm. like, did I answer your question? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was great. Thank you.
0: Thank you.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Dan. You know, as we sort of uh, turn the corner here and while I was reading the book, You know, I'm just curious about you, the author. And so, you know, you know, stepping away from the reporter's brain and the author's brain and that sort of journalistic outlook, I just want to know, like as a listener, and maybe you address this in the book, but I didn't get there. What is your favorite Dilla song?
3: Oh, I mean, that's that's hard. You know, (laughs) are you even? Um, (laughs) I will say this. Uh, I really, really love his remixes. I think Mm -hmm. some of his best work are his remixes. And I do spend a little time in the book talking about his remix for Steve Spacek, for Spacek called Eve, right? A Mm -hmm. song called Eve, which uh, I don't even think came out in America. It was on an island subsidiary called Blue in the UK. And uh, the original song is pretty decent, Um, but uh, Spacek's vocal... Is like really bizarre, you know. Again, in a good way. Like he's, I say in the book, he kind of sounds like a cross between Curtis Mayfield and Tiny Tim. And (laughs) Tiny (laughs) James James (laughs) didn't James didn't know what to do with this record. He asked, even asked Kareem Riggins, who was sort of his understudy for a while. You know, you want to do something with this? And he ended up doing this incredible remix. Uh, that I actually ended up speaking to Spacek about. like, He did weird things like with the original elements in the song, he took the guitar that was on the verses and put it in the chorus, and he took the guitar that was in the chorus and put it in the verses. But he also uh, you know, creates his own chorus to the song and reharmonizes it and has put, sets it against this incredible offset limping beat And then, you know, introduces Frank and Dank to the world Mm. on that song, too. Um, And it's the the song is like a sunrise. It's it's like hearing his mastery. I hear a lot of his mastery in that remix. He shows incredible mastery in a very little known remix for Carl Craig's Inner Zone Orchestra. People make the world go around. Uh, Obviously, his remix for... um, Lucy Pearl, without you, is incredible. And then finally, his remix of Oblighetto by Jack McDuff for Blue mm.
2: Note—he
3: re-times and reharmonizes the whole song. Like this is not the work of a, a hip-hop remixer. This is the work of somebody who has a kind of transcendent ability um, in music. So uh, let's just say that among all of the. I mean, I love the songs he did for Chino, you know? I mean, how could I not, right? Um, How can you not, like, fall in love? It's the anthem, you know? It's mandatory. But (laughs) I point to his remixes for people who really want to, you know, hear some real genius.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Dan, we want to thank you for coming on the program. Thank you. Really looking forward to uh, sitting down and get my teeth into Dilla time. February 1st, 2022, it will be available for all the heads to read. Thank you. And we hope to have you back on the program for your next book, which will be. Oh, my God.
3: (laughs) That's so much pressure. Let me just get past
2: (laughs)
0: this one. (laughs) You got a manuscript under your desk right there.
3: Come on. (laughs) I wish. Oh, thank you so much for having me.
2: Thanks, Dan. It was a pleasure.
1: Yeah, man. Thank you again. Talk soon, man.
3: Be well.
0: was our conversation with writer Dan Charnas. We want to thank him for coming on the program. And we'd also like to beg him to come back. Uh, Right. Such a fun conversation.
1: And I remember that day we were, I think we were on a very tight schedule that day as well. So we had to like get on and off with him real quick. So um, Dan, if you're listening, we would love to have you back um, celebrate the book and just kind of see what you're up to now,
0: you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think if memory serves and I'm sorry, I haven't heard the interview yet, but if memory serves, I did ask him. So, like, what's the next book? And he's like, "Bruh, like, <laughs> I just finished the. Relax, yeah. That's I hilarious. just finished this one. That's a yeah. that's a very rap <laughs> fan uh, type of question. Um, all right, so let's let's get into our question of the week. I threw this up on Twitter over the weekend at Dad Bod rap Pod, as I occasionally do. The question for this week is: If you we're charged with uh, convincing someone of Dilla's greatness, and you can only play them one song. What would it be? You are past the ox cord in a room of, full of Dilla <laughs> doubters, and and you've got to convince them. Um, what song would you pick? This, I think, is our most robust uh, question of the week response. I, I was like,
2: if we really wanted to run our numbers up, we should just be a Dilla Stan account for a couple of months. <laughs>
0: I'm very goodness. interested
2: in talking about this.
0: Man. Um, yeah, so thanks, everybody, that, that chimed in. Uh, the mentions have been uh, off the hook for the last couple of days, and so we want to share some. We can't even begin to crack all of the folks who who chimed in here. Um, let's start it off with uh, what I'll call, I'll call him a friend of the program, uh, Dean Van Nguyen says at dean van Wynn who's a, a writer bro he's got the uh the ghost he face is, kill- m-
2: he is mentioned in the uh acknowledgments of the book I caught oh his name. Of, a, of, a of lot Time. of people we know are but I, I caught dean's name in the it's uh somewhere near the top i think he's called a, a fellow dillaologist in the book
0: oh sick um and and also irish so i i always think that that enhances whatever you're doing um, just being Irish. <laughs> uh, and what is the name? What is the name of Dean Van Wynn's book? Oh shoot, I forgot what it's called. Iron Age. Uh, Iron yeah, Age. That's right.
2: I, I remember that because I said it wrong on all of our all of our materials. I wrote it wrong in the show notes. I wrote it wrong in the title. I wrote it wrong on social media like seven times. And
0: I still feel bad about it. Yeah, uh, as and and I was right there with you, which is why I asked before launching into it again <laughs> and calling it Iron Man. It is mm-hmm. Iron Age. It's a book about Ghostface Killer. We encourage everybody to check it out. We thank him for chiming in. Dean's tweet goes as follows: "I'd play Black Star's Little Brother," explaining how Dilla took Roy Ayers' Ain't Got Time, and with no obvious point of the song to snatch, he snatched fragments of audio, a second here, a half second there, and glued together a cohesive eight-bar loop genius um also genius dean's tweet is well formatted and punctuated um <laughs> like any good writer um dave ma is also a master of this knows how to use that slash just knows how to <laughs> how to sneak it in there the
1: m dash yeah yes.
0: it's 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 a uh, that is your secret sauce thank you dean for chiming in there um little brother the track little brother which was which is a black star song came up a bunch um a lot of people really really dig that cut is um, that a released
2: song i don't think i know that song
0: i think it's uh i think it's uh it's on something
2: mm-hmm,
1: it's on something mm-hmm.
0: that's not the black star record
1: right it's right. some
0: it's it's somewhere um please correct us on twitter at Dad Bod Rap Pod, shout out to everybody that also posted the links to some of these songs, <laughs> um, which was super helpful. Uh, let's go to at John Liberator, uh, another friend of the program. Everything that's already been named here is perfect. I just want to throw this into the mix, and he added a link, a YouTube link to a song called Yum Yum, which I forgot is one of my favorite Slum Village songs uh, from their Fantastic Volume One um, unreleased thing so in the dilla time book um I, I read one of the excerpts and it talks about dilla trying to shop um slum village and q-tip being like yeah that's cool but like i kind of want to work with you i'm not as interested in <laughs> Slum village as a group um what i've heard is that this is the batch of songs that he was he was taking around and so I think, their demo yeah kind of like their demo fantastic volume one has a bunch of cool weird Definitely demo sounding, but you can kind of see some of the genius that would be Slum village on there. Um, so uh, Yum Yum, definitely one of my favorites in that stood out for me. Let's see, here's a song that came up a bunch that I actually did not know about and I'm not ashamed to say I didn't <laughs> know about it. Um, at Dibbly Bibbly, Keith Murray, the rhyme Slum Village remix, got the Nautilus samples, the wobbly drums and the analog feeling. I mean, the most impressive is probably Little Brother, but I love this. Um, a lot of people mention that as their kind of starting point for Dilla as well. Um,
2: Is it the most beautifulest beat in the world?
0: <laughs> <laughs> that, see, you guys step your game up. Nate made the tweet <laughs> that a bunch of y'all should have made. Uh, uh,
2: I just, I happened to listen to that right before we hopped on. And he, he does make sure everyone knows he's the guy who did that song. He, I think he starts <laughs> off the second verse with a, with a reference to that.
0: That's yeah. That's awesome, and and I think it's an interesting entry point for him. I remember having arguments with a producer friend who was like, "Ah, oh, Dylan's all right. He just sounds like Eric Sermon. <laughs> he just filters the drums." That's and I'm like, no, it,
2: dude. "No, no. Maybe uh, I'm the second least musical, musicallogical <laughs>
0: guy ever." <laughs> I'm like, "That's not what this is." Yeah. Um. Here's a super music, musicological dude. Uh. Friend of the program, an amazing producer in his own right at list says working on it to show them Dilla as an unrivaled storyteller in samples. Uh, Dave, I know you're you're a, a donut lover. Um, <laughs> not <laughs> only Dab maple bars. <laughs> <laughs> your gut doesn't show it, but you love donuts. Um working on it is an is an amazing joint. What is your joint off donuts? Dave, if you join off
1: donuts, um, well, you know, I kind of have a a little story, but um when when donuts first came out, I I was part of the group of people who just thought it was okay. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Um Mm -hmm. and then I was further turned off by like the flood of weird posthumous releases and just everybody, you know, wearing the Dilla shirts. I'm like, come on, bro. Mm -hmm. But a few years later, I took fucking mushrooms and my brain mm-hmm. fucking splattered on the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And um, it was like it was like a samurai cut, cutting a globe in half. And then you're looking <laughs> inside the globe. That, that that was like my the visuals in my head anyway. So to answer your question, um, my cutoff uh, of uh, Donuts is last donut of the night. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. can, it get, can a song get any more beautiful? You know, the, yeah. the melody and just. I ju- just the pacing and the tempo of that song, literally, I mean, all the songs on there are so short because they're, you know, like little vignettes, but I can literally listen to that song like 30 times. And I probably have yeah.
0: um, that. That's my cut off of uh, Donuts for that sure. Is, that's your, your, no, that's, and a lot of folks mentioned that too. Um, yeah, It's not easy to make a sample based uh, beat tape that has emotional resonance. Right. Like, that's right. maybe part of Dilla's genius is he, took this format which a lot of times is just like things for rappers to to rap over or you know just weird for the sake of weird but uh donuts has a bunch of songs i like dayless's idea of uh storytelling via sample i think working Mm -hmm. on it is a great example of that as well as he has pointed out i would encourage folks i'm not going to do a sample snitch here do your own research Figure out what the sample source is for working on it. Don't tell everybody. Just do <laughs> this. Do this for yourself. Listen to that. Listen to working on it. I would encourage you to do that. The the donuts samples have been well decoded. Um, You can definitely see what a fucking genius this dude is. Like he's taking mm-hmm. things that nobody right. literal audio refuse to most producers and turning it into like absolute gold Uh, working on it. One of my favorite ones, my favorite donut is a uh, And I know a lot mm. of people, people mm. mentioned that. Um, let's go to, these are just all friends of the program, I guess. Cause when you have 145 responses, <laughs> I, I, I pick who I knows. Uh, Sean Demmitt, uh, Sean Kantrowitz, who Nate, are we getting another season of can't knock the shuffle?
2: I'm not sure. We'll oh, have okay. to Ask Sean
0: when we okay. run into him. I all know right, uh,
2: questions is coming back and Dan. Oh, that's right. On there.
0: That's right. Questions yeah. is coming back. We'd love a, another invite to clear our name. We didn't, <laughs> we did not fare so well on the program last time. Sean, if you have it in your heart, please let us come back. Uh, he says, if I'm talking to someone who isn't already, already aware, I got to swing for the fences with the most surefire jam. And that is always going to be fall in love um, off of uh fantastic volume two slum village Probably Nate, one of is the most it... beautiful beats ever mm-hmm. made right mm-hmm. okay so I was gonna ask so that I think on a previous program you had talked about this one resonates with you
2: oh yeah it's, it's such a great song yeah he's it it's it, it, I most rap beats are not that pretty
0: yeah it's yep. like,
2: it's not really something people aspire to in yep. hip hop production very often. Yep. Uh, but th- this one really is. And it, it's just, yeah, it has a huge emotional resonance now for a lot of different people. But um, yeah, what, what a great melody and how many yeah. great variations on the theme then are carried mm-hmm. out throughout the song. It's I think it's a really good example.
0: Um, yep. Not that many
2: people said uh, F the Police.
0: Yeah, that was, I remember the last time we did a Dilla retrospective, that was only controller seven
2: might have said that's interesting yeah that's that's one of my
1: favorites same same it's like how do you make the hardest song ever harder totally (laughs) it's crazy exactly (laughs) Exactly.
0: um and i think that's part of the genius like the whole as i was like looking at what people were saying you have these pretty songs i'll say renin is also kind of pretty yeah like in in the original
2: the original source is very pretty. So totally. to yeah. kind of muddy it up and run it through all these different permutations is really interesting.
0: But but to kind of maintain the the rappiness, I think that I'm probably wrong about this. Please correct me timeline. But I know for for me, that was the first time that I was like, oh, you can kind of like weaponize Bossa Nova. Like <laughs> it can it can be turned into a hip-hop beat. And I think that's that's part of Dilla's genius, is seeing the rhythm uh that was there. But I remember when we had Oh, why is his name escaping me? Detroit producer who is not Sterling Tolls. Apollo Brown. <laughs> Apollo Brown. Thank you. Uh, when we had Apollo Brown on, he noted that, you know, he, despite being from Detroit and being a Detroit producer, wasn't heavy into Dilla. And he kind of mentioned that, like, hey, I was into, like, that hard shit. Like, yeah. And, right. and he kind of placed that, like, you know, some of Dilla's stuff was, was um, I don't think he used the word pretty, but he just didn't associate it with being, the hardcore shit that he liked. And he said he grew into it eventually. And I've kind of heard that from different people too. It's like, oh, okay. You know, he kind of makes a, an r and type of thing or whatever. But um,
2: it's actually I, interesting how much R&B there is associated with him. Mostly D'Angelo totally. and Badu, which are like great artists, regardless of genre of our time. Mm-hmm. But yep. um, yeah, it's just, I think a lot of people's entryway is who... You know mess with us who listen to this is probably not those those jams but those right. are really important too and i feel like yeah. because the I, I don't think they like this term but like the um what do they call it it wasn't uh neo soul neo like soul, the neo soul mm-hmm. stuff like mm-hmm. is more musical it like has yeah. musicians doing mm-hmm. kind of the dilla time for the first times mm-hmm. it's it's a really good um entry point for the kind of point of this book which is that this guy changed the musical perception of time we take this great leap forward in our understanding of mm-hmm. rhythm through his work and um you know it's it's quest love it's james poyser it's yep. um P- pino paladino who mm. is all over those um
0: D'Angelo records. Uh,
2: d'angelo records and therefore some of the other sessions from that time had to like relearn how to play to play it it's, it's just crazy. really fascinating
0: That that's and uh to quote quote house shoes which i don't do a lot um neo soul is dilla beats like mm-hmm. he he really shaped the sound of uh, of neo soul and if you look at some of the you know the top people who kind of define that genre of course D'Angelo and and Badu um, and Bilal too um, he produced mm. uh, a lot of those joints and or Questlove doing his best uh, interpolation of of the Dilla sound on a lot of those um, I want to
2: revisit that point when you've had a chance to read the book
0: okay. Definitely will. I don't have to do it on air,
2: but yeah, it might not not be as seamless as you think it is.
0: (laughs) Of course not. Of course not. But but why let good reportage get in the way of a good story? Um, uh, Let's see. At uh, Troskad Darbna. It's not. (laughs) not an easy name, (laughs) but but it is a good it is a good tweet. Um, Don't cry. Which samples redacted? I can't stand to see you cry. He lets the original play for 40 seconds, then increases the tempo, samples fragments of kicks and snares, ignoring the original melody and uses the MPC in such ways that the emotion of the song is completely changed. A lot of people said don't cry. I guess I'm a little I'm a little bit surprised even before I ask this question. I have seen folks on Twitter um really coalescing around the idea that this is one of his greatest works which That's weird i didn't know him and guns wrote guns and roses timeline added
2: up so, so smoothly dilla time
0: is all times uh yeah don't cry is a, is a very interesting song and it, it does have the time signature um switch up in it which i see a lot of folks try to imitate um, but definitely, for a lot of people, that was a that was a song that they held up as the best works. I think trying to get somebody into Dilla with that song would be tough. Um, I remember uh, trying to play donuts for people who were not initiated, and them just being like, uh, "This is uh, this is a lot. This is a lot. There's a lot going on." <laughs> it's which, a siren, which, Jesus, yeah. Which there is.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, let's see. Let's get maybe one more um a lot of people mention this including at jim congle uh the roots can't stop this mm. when the eulogy at the beginning transitions to the time last donor of the night beat it puts a lump in my throat every time black thought rides the beat so beautifully mm. um not a Dilla song per se but like one that that is obviously a tribute to him and that uh a lot of folks mentioned did y'all ever hear that um that project the instrumental project where the the roots just do a bunch of dilla beats like they oh the name of it is escaping hmm, that me. sounds familiar uh, this song is not on there but it just made me think of uh there's a whole project where quest love kind of like reconstructs dilla beats with the roots band uh, i've never listened
2: to that if we find a link can you send it
0: to me i i definitely will it's it's okay. very it's very interesting because it, it i think it demonstrates kind of the link between um what uh Dilla was doing and kind of how that influenced the roots um and then how the roots kind of also influenced a lot of other things uh, we're always grateful for when folks chime in on our questions of the week at dad bod rap pod on twitter uh you can also find us on instagram at dad bod rap pod um and you know where else you can find us in the club no <laughs> Uh, <laughs> if you have a time machine yeah you can find me <laughs> in the club um, um weed club yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sam's club yeah, uh yeah. so you can find us on patreon um i'm finding nate that not everybody knows what patreon is uh um, well, you know it's
2: funny uh my wife was asking me the other day apropos of very little like what do you call them she's like do you call them patrons do you call them patreons i was like we call them the homies i don't know what the term is (laughs) subscribers i guess Um, i don't know uh uh, patreon is a website where content creators such as ourselves though i hate that term and feel bad saying it um post up uh extra goodies from the show it's an extension of the show's universe that you can pay to be a part of there is a pretty active back and forth with a messaging system there are bonus segments there are uh radio shows and there's going to be a spin-off podcast coming soon that's more focused on food stuff there's a chance to win dave's promos there is um just like other things we're trying it's like kind of the uh the lap where we see where the show is going next and interact with people and it's patreon.com slash dad bod rapod.
0: Yes, sir. For just five dollars a month, you can get all that flyness, including Nate's radio show, The Fly Sporadic. Nate, I'm gonna keep it real with you. I'm getting requests from non-subscribers. Shoot me the Fly Sporadic. They and I, I'm not gonna do it. Because bootleggers, <laughs> bootleggers get their leg broke. Not, <laughs> not, not gonna be me. I you have a subscribe. few
2: personal friends who have been a part of my musical journey that I will send it to, but everybody else has to subscribe.
0: Yeah, subscribe. It's it's well worth it. We're definitely putting um, time, thought, and energy uh, into the Patreon, so we hope that you can continue to rock with us here on the Dad Bod Rap Pod. We are just steamrolling. We got interviews in the Tuck. Dave, tell them who we don't got coming up because we can't announce
2: <laughs> <it>.
1: <laughs> Just make faces.
0: We don't have Eminem coming up. <laughs> um... <laughs>
2: yeah. Continuing with the Detroit theme, we don't yeah. have Eminem. Yes. <laughs> we,
0: we, we do not have Eminem. Um, but, you know, we got some really cool interviews in the Tuck coming for y'all. And we appreciate your patronage. We do this every fucking Thursday. We drop new episodes. Tap in. It's the dad bod rap pod.
3: never been taken out i keep mc's looking out i drop science like girls be dropping babies about enough to make a nerd go crazy <laughs>